Hello there, welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you for being here as always. Or if this is your very first Arsblog Arscast, welcome to the show. I wish I could tell you exactly what you're in for between now and the end of the podcast, but I don't really know because basically I just kind of make it up as I go along. Within a certain framework, of course, because we do have a guest, Tim Stillman will be with me this week to talk about the North London Derby coming up on Sunday. That's right, Arsenal versus Tottenham. We'll also be looking back at the game against Ludogorets and, uh, you know, whatever else has been doing the rounds this week, we'll be chatting about that. We've got some one-day fantasy football with FanDuel for you. You can win yourself real-life cash by just playing fantasy football for one day. You don't even have to play for a whole season and you can win real money. Stand by for details on that later in the show. Last week, I spoke to the uh, brilliant David Squires, whose uh, cartoons you might have seen in the garden. Not the garden. Of course, that's not what I mean. David Squires does not go randomly into people's gardens or your garden and do football illustrations. He does them in The Guardian. So you, you will probably have seen them there rather than out your backyard. Uh, but he's got a brand new book out called The Illustrated History of Football. We gave you a chance to win two copies on last week's show. I'll give you the winners of that. What else? We've got another extract from the autobiography of Alexander Kleb. That's coming up between now and the end of the show. And all the bits and pieces, all the waffle that goes on in between. Uh, just before we start, a complaint directed not at Arsenal, but at the movie industry, right? I normally avoid trailers as much as possible because I remember when a trailer used to be like 60 seconds, maybe 90 seconds maximum, and it would give you like a teaser, a bit of a flavor for a film. And nowadays, nowadays you you get trailers that are over three minutes long and you're looking at it going, I'm definitely seeing all the best bits in this film. And actually there's probably some spoilers in here and oh, look, oh, they've practically given away the ending. So I watched the... um, trailer. I don't know why it was there. I just saw it. I just pressed it. Well, ah, trailer for Train Spotting 2. So if you're a fan of Train Spotting 1, here's my first piece of advice. Don't watch the trailer. Now, I'm leaving aside the debate as to whether or not a Train Spotting 2 is a good idea or not. I suspect maybe it's not because the first one was so good. Can they recreate the the magic all that? Do we really need it? Wasn't it wasn't it all tied up rather beautifully at the end of the first film? Of course, the temptation when you make a film like that and characters like that, it's very difficult as, let's say, an artist, as a writer or a filmmaker to to make things as iconic as that. You usually get sort of one go at making something that, that resonates like that. So the temptation to come back to it, I understand. But I watched the trailer and then I was about two minutes into this two minute, 50 second trailer going, why did I watch this? I could be wrong here, but I feel like uh, based on what I saw, and taking into account the circumstance of everything, that there is a, like, they've given away a big part of the film or, you know, something really important that happens in the film that, you know, you probably shouldn't know about until, you know, you actually go and watch the film, right? Do they have to? Why are they doing Why do they do this? Why do they put these bits in it where you go, oh, there's only one possible thing that could happen here? Even though you haven't been, like, straight up and said, this is what happens, it's pretty obvious, you're like, you fucking cunts. Why just just give us like 60 seconds? Quick trailer. This is the film. This is kind of a couple of little bits that are quite good. And then that's it. And we can make our minds up on that. It's especially bad with comedy films, I think. They tend to show you all the best gags. And then you go along and it's like, oh, well, yeah, that, that bit was funny. I like that bit, you know, but having seen it already in the trailer, I'm not that impressed. 
It's really terrible the way it's going. And why is it? It's sort of counterintuitive to what's going on at the moment, right? People talk about attention spans getting shorter and it's actually affecting football. People aren't watching as much football as they used to. Sky's viewing figures are down. There was a great article by uh, Ken Early in the Irish Times a couple of weeks ago about why that is. Because, you know, people have internet, people have smartphones and tablets. And they're sort of, "Eh, you know, I can just watch the goals on Vine. Oh, no, you can't. Poor Vine. Like, nice work, Twitter. Get rid of something that's good and interesting and actually positive and full of, like, cool things for people to watch. And yet the rise of Eggman 2005 with his eggy avatar and his racism and his prejudice, he's allowed to do whatever he wants and you get rid of Vine? What a load of bullshit. But anyway, look, Ken was making the point in his article that people aren't watching football anymore because 90 minutes is too long. And I've strayed completely off the point here, but my, I'm coming back to it. What, I, what I'm trying to say is that as attention spans get shorter, they're making movie trailers longer. That doesn't make any sense. Make them shorter again and include less of the film. That way, when we go along, we haven't already seen all the best bits and we're not sure exactly what's going to happen. I mean, in this day and age, if they made a trailer for The Crying Game, it would be about 2 minutes 57 seconds long and there would be a 30-second close-up on the Mickey. You know what I'm saying? So they need to just fucking sort this shit out. Anyway, back to football. And since we last spoke, it's been a pretty good week. We had a 4-1 win away at Sunderland in the Premier League last weekend. Made it a little bit hairy for ourselves by allowing it back to 1-1. But Olivier Giroud came off the bench, scored a couple. Alexis Sanchez scored a couple. Comfortable win. Well-deserved. And then midweek, we have uh, Arsenal versus Ludogorets in the Champions League. Everyone thought, like, at 6-0 in the first game, that this is going to be easy. It's going to be a walkover. He should play the kids. He should rest everybody ahead of the North London derby. And he did make some changes, of course. Aaron Ramsey back in the starting 11 on the right-hand side. Olivier Giroud up front. There were some other changes as well. Hector Bellerin left at home. So Carl Jenkinson got a game. Granite Xhaka came back in. You know, so a few changes. And we're 2-0 down in, what, 15 20 minutes, something like that. Uh, So not a good start. And actually, one of the things that's been a bit of a worry in recent times is the fact that we've been giving the opposition quite a lot of chances, chances that they, very kindly, have been squandering. I much prefer a squanderous opposition, not one that was slightly efficient and ruthless, like Ludogorets the other night. I've seen people describe them as like, you know, no-hopers or part-timers. And, you know, I think what we've seen from them over the last uh, two games is that they're pretty decent. They're not a bad team at all. They're not a big name, but they're no walkover, uh, as uh, as Tuesday night showed. So 2-0 down, not so great. But goals from Granite Xhaka, Mesut Ozil assist, and uh, Olivier Giroud and Aaron Ramsey assist made it 2-2 at halftime. Second half, bit of a struggle, not really threatening, not really looking like we were going to do it. There was a moment where we thought, oh, it's there for Alexis after a Xhaka pass, but he couldn't control the ball. And then Mesut Ozil scored that goal. I mean, what an absolutely sensational piece of football that was. And I've seen people this week on Twitter and stuff uh, play it down because it was against Ludogorets. And I'm not having any of that. Fuck off. Okay, I mean, I get it from the point of view that if he was playing against Cripply Joes, amputees, and polio sufferers, then you might say it was made easy for him. But this is Champions League football. Champions League football was 2-2. 
Ludogorets are the Bulgarian champions. And they showed, as we said, uh, that they're, they're a decent side. The ball came through from El Neni. Uh, Ozil just lifted it over the keeper, saw the keeper, went inside him, left the defenders just skidding on their arses, going nowhere, took another touch. Uh, just absolutely sensational. Superb. Uh, football from a guy who is really imposing himself on this Arsenal team this season, who looks absolutely determined to make an impact in in every game that he plays. And I thought he he was a bit frustrated at times. Maybe it was the way that we played. Maybe the fact that when Giroud and Ramsey are in the team in that way, that it, it fundamentally changes the way the team plays. But it was very interesting, wasn't it, that, that Ozil, who's got a lot of his goals this season from uh, moving into space that the centre-forward normally occupies, that's then left vacant because we have this wandering centre-forward in Alexis Sanchez who drifts out of position, allowing Ozil to take that space. The goal came when Olivier Giroud was not there. For one of the first times, Giroud had started the move by coming back really well to to win the ball. El Nenny played it through and Ozil did the right. I mean, just a fucking brilliant goal. Brilliant. And it should be enjoyed for exactly what it was and not downplayed because of who it was against. There are people that just want to suck the joy out of everything. Every single thing. And they're just stop it. Just fucking stop it and enjoy it. And while... I'm about to do something similar. I just want to illustrate the fact that this is this goes back to what I was talking about last week or the week before, I can't remember, about assists and true assists and, and how you measure them. So Mohamed Elneny gets an assist for the pass to Mesut Ozil, which was a great pass. He spotted the run. The ball was perfectly weighted. It was a fantastic pass. But is it truly an assist when Mesut Ozil does what he did when he got the ball, which is to lob it over the keeper, to come inside two defenders, to throw a dummy, and then and then put the ball in the net. Is it really an assist? I mean, I suppose, you know, he assisted Ozil in doing all the brilliance, but was it the, the kind of assist that you would you would mark down uh, as a, an indication of a player's creativity? I don't I don't know. This is the gray area. This is where it becomes difficult. Actually nobody has come back to me with a with a genuine solution for this either. So uh, either nobody cares or nobody can think of one. I suspect it could be could be the former. I might be on my own here. But uh, yeah, a fantastic win. And look, let's talk a little bit more about it with my guest this week, a man who was there, who saw that goal live in person and what a goal to witness. Tim Stillman, welcome to the show. Hello there. Let's talk about Mesut Ozil and Mesut Ozil's goal in midweek. You were there. Um, yes, in your, <laughs> in your uh, column, you were saying at the time you didn't quite realize what, what a great goal it was. But um, having viewed it a bazillion times like everybody else this week, uh, it really was a bit special. Yeah, yeah, it really, really was. And I mean, at the, at the time, I think t- two things I really, really enjoyed about this goal that struck me instantly. First of all, it's the 87th minute. It's 2-2. Someone's going through one-on-one. I don't like it when players, Arsenal players go round the goalkeeper at the best of times. <laughs> and particularly if they take more than one touch after they go round the goalkeeper, <laughs> at least internally, I'll be shouting, you know, shoot, shoot, shoot. Yeah. But um, really, really strangely, I didn't on this occasion. I felt completely and utterly comfortable. And I think that's just because it was Ozil and I just had this kind of, yeah, he knows what he's doing. Uh, kind of feeling in in the kind of in the pit of, pit of my stomach, and the other thing I loved about it is if you watch um, just after he puts the ball in the net, it was it was kind of an unusually exuberant celebration from Ozil. I mean, he went he went mental, 
and he doesn't often do that even mm. when he does score and what what that says is that all the way through this process he understood the gravity of the situation he understood the pressure the importance but he was still able to totally detach from it and yet the second the ball hits the net he then kind of runs off screaming his head off um, and I, I think that says a lot about Ozil um, as a player he's one of those few players that um, the more time he has to think, the better his decisions are. That's, that's very, very rare. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, in a footballer. Yeah, I mean, you you look at some players or, and some of the goals that players score, and you see a guy smash one in from thirty yards, and you go, "That's an amazing goal, fantastic, brilliant." But like, it also happens for a guy who's playing Sunday League. Uh, he can whack one in from 30 yards every now and again. But the Ozil goal was one that you look at and go. There aren't many players in the world who could have scored that goal. Like that's Precisely. if Lionel Messi had scored that goal, and I think we've probably seen him score something similar to that kind. Of, you know, he would be getting all the plaudits. And and to be fair, I think Ozil's got a huge amount of credit this week for the goal because uh, because of the the sheer quality of it. Uh, but there aren't many players in the world who can do that. No, no, indeed, and it, it reminded me a little bit of um, I think Messi did score one one or two years ago in a. Champions League semi-final against Bayern where I think he put Jerome Boateng mm. um, kind of on his backside probably slightly less um, subtle kind of faint than Ozil's but it was a similar kind of thing where he's in front of goal and you just fully expect him to pull the trigger but he doesn't he kind of faints inside and even a fairly decent international quality defender like like Boateng was completely foxed by it um, and you're right, it's just one of those moments you think, yeah, I, I wouldn't back anyone um, really to do that. I, th- I think the only kind of comparable goal, uh, for the only other Arsenal player who might have been uh, capable of that, I think Alexis scored one fairly similar against Hull, albeit it was injury time and we were 3-1 up, where mm. I think he went round the goalkeeper and took several touches and probably more in keeping with his character, his character he then proceeded to blast the ball into the roof of the net because there are two players on the line. I think those two goals probably tell you quite a lot about both players and their their qualities and their attributes. But yeah. that goal was just Ozil all over, you know, every single part of it. You, mm. when, when a player goes through one-on-one, sometimes you start playing out in your mind what you think is going to happen because usually you think, right, he's just going to knock that, you know, to the goalkeeper's right onto his left foot and steer it in. And then, oh, that's interesting. He's put it over him. Okay. And now he's just going to put it in. Nope, that's interesting. Yeah. He's, he's turned inside again. And all of it, every every bit of it is just completely unpredictable, but absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah, just fantastic. I mean, it, it, it's one of those that really does bear a lot of repeat viewing. And uh, you want to see it from, from as many angles as you can possibly see it from. Slow motions. Uh, I don't know. I'll watch any version of that goal that comes out. Um, but, but on Ozil himself, it, it's interesting. I'm looking at a guy who is really, he looks determined to make an impact this season in terms of what he's producing. He looks happy. He looks like he, he really feels like he belongs in this team that, uh, you know, there are, there are other guys who will do the leading and the talking and the shouting and the pointing, but you know, he's, he's 
doing that classic thing, that Wenger thing of leading by example, you know, through through the quality of his performances. And maybe this at 28 years of age, you know, it's normal that he's coming into his, his prime years, into his peak. But I think we're beginning to see him really have a, a, a massive influence on this Arsenal team and perhaps in a way that we didn't necessarily expect. We always expected him to be the creator and he's now, he's still creative. Obviously, he made the goal for, for Xhaka, but he's he's winning us games. He's he's producing with goals and end product and that's something that Arsene Wenger's been after him to do for a while. Absolutely. And and with that goal as well, and, he, and you know, about 60 seconds earlier, he made that exact same run, but was, was flagged offside and that yeah. was really... Because in the second half, we kind of struggled to get our attacking game together with a few kind of unfamiliar bits and pieces um, up front and some players who possibly weren't that sharp. And um, mm. that, was, that was a real kind of, no, I'm, I'm taking responsibility here. I'm, I'm going to go and win this game. I know there's space in behind. Um, I know Ludogorets are playing quite a high line. We haven't got Walcott. Um, Giroud, for all his qualities, is not going to run into that space. So I'm going to do it. Um, and we, we are seeing that more and more um, from him. And I thought it was really interesting that I kind of attributed his increased goal scoring to the fact that Alexis was playing up front and therefore that leaves space for you, you know, for him to run into. Um, but this happened while Giroud was up front. And I appreciate when the goal was scored, Giroud had kind of run back and made a valuable contribution winning the mm. ball. But he did keep making those runs, even though it was Olivier Giroud up front. It wasn't just, uh, oh, well, Sanchez is going to come out of that space, so I suppose I'd better go into it. And um, I think, you know, Wenger has spoken again and again and again about his goal scoring. And, you know, it does kind of look like he's got the taste for it. And, and as I said, I think the amount that he visibly enjoyed that goal said a lot as well, because in the past, his celebrations have, without going into COD body psychology, his celebrations have been a bit more kind of reserved. But mm. he, he seems to have got that not quite selfishness, but, you know, that, that kind of desire that, that, yeah, I want to score the goal. I like that feeling. Yeah. Um, and long may it continue, frankly. How deliberate do you think this is in, in the sense that is it uh, just a great run of form? Is it kind of a happy accident because of the way that we've been playing that Ozil has decided, okay, there is this space for me to run into when others vacated? Or is it something that maybe Arsenal, dare I say, have have worked on tactically in order to, to get him into these positions? Because he's deceptively quick. People still aren't expecting him to to be that guy that's playing on the the shoulder of the last defender. I mean, he's he's more offside more this season than he has been in any other season. So it's very deliberate what's going on. I just wonder how deliberate you think it is in terms of is it a strategy or is it something they're going? Oh well, look, you're good at that. Keep doing it. I think it. <clears throat> excuse me. I think it probably started as a, a bit of a happy accident and a consequence of Alexis playing up front. Um, I think one of the things that Wenger is actually very good at, at coach as a coach, we know he likes kind of self-determination of players, but I think that Wenger's actually quite good at um, gently pushing someone into a certain direction and then letting them believe it was it was down to them. <laughs> They've had a eureka moment. And I think that's probably what's happened here. You know, it, it started off that, yeah, we're playing Alexis, who's not really a striker, so the space to run into. Um, also, we you know we haven't got Ramsey in the team at the moment, and you know I, I could see Aaron Ramsey 
being the sort of player who would otherwise really, really like to run into that kind of space. And uh, I think it kind of started as necessity. And, you know, Wenger's been slowly kind of, you know, whispering in his ear via the media, you know, you're really good at this. You're a really good finisher. You're really good at scoring goals. Go score more of them. And mm. and that slowly, whether consciously or subconsciously, the penny's kind of dropped with Ozil. And I, I think this happens a lot. Um, with Wenger, he he kind of gently guides, you know, gently guides them to the water, um, yeah. and then when they start drinking, they think it, you know, the the player tends to think it's it's kind of down to them, and I think Wenger's very happy for them to think that, and yeah. I, I kind of think that's what's happened here that one thing has kind of begat the other. Right. I mean, I think it's something we've seen maybe maybe more in recent years where if something's worked, he's been quite willing to embrace it. So you look at, for example, mm. someone like Francis Coquelin, the coquelin Cazorla thing, you know, things that have worked and have served him well that haven't necessarily been part of the plan. Hector Bellerin, another one, for example, you know, that he has been um, open to going, OK, well, that wasn't what I was thinking, but it's good. So I'm going to. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to stay with it. The other thing I, w- I sort of liked about uh, Tuesday night was the fact that when we went two down away from home in Europe, I it reminded me of I'm not trying to uh, make parallels between the quality of the teams, but it reminded me of a game a couple of years ago against Dortmund where I think they went into the lead very quickly and and we looked a bit all over the place. And I can't really remember the last time Arsenal were 2-0 down and came back to win a game. I think it's been has been quite some time. So it's it speaks to belief and character and all those intangibles that we like to believe a team has, but which are only demonstrated through nights like Tuesday night, that when you're 2-0 down, you come back to win a game 3-2. You can take a lot of confidence and belief in that, while at the same time saying there are issues that maybe we have to address uh, when you when you end up 2-0 down in the first place. Yeah, precisely. And and I think um, I, I never got the sense that they were particularly panicked, even at 2-0 down. Um, you know, I I, I, I said to, to my wife in, in the stadium, I said, I, I, I think we'll score three goals. Um, I'm not sure I'm terribly confident that we'll <laughs> keep it down to two. Um, but I really, really thought, even with that fairly ragtag attack, um, I, I really believed we'd be able to score three goals. And that's... Mm. That's really not to be sniffed at. I know that Ludogorets only play in the Bulgarian league, but you know that that attack is is very good. I think they scored 24 goals in their last seven games, um, albeit in Bulgaria. But mm. that means it's a very fluent attack, and actually they've got a lot of the qualities that we don't like. They're good at running into space, and we leave a bit of space. I think the thing that impressed me was I never got the impression that. We didn't look rocked, you know, even in the kind of two or three minutes after their second goal. There wasn't, you know, in, in the past and, and whole City in the cup final comes to mind, you know, in the past, the kind of five minutes that follow that second goal have been really, really quite anxious. Mm. Um, but Arsenal kind of kept it right under control um, as if they, they did kind of dismiss it as a bit of a blip and that they thought that there would they would get back into the game. And I suppose um, having beaten Ludogorets 6-0 at home, they probably had the confidence that they would be able to score enough goals against them. Yeah. I mean, do you look at the defensive side of our game with a little bit of trepidation? Because I think we've played opposition in recent weeks who have been um, 
they've spurned chances to make games very different or for the games to at least go on a, a very different trajectory to the ones that they did. Um, Ludegaard's the other night were, were efficient. They took their chances. They did look dangerous. They had uh, chances on the break. I mean, we had corners and almost every time we had a corner, they seemed to end up breaking up the other end of the pitch. Uh, and we never seemed to, to do anything about it. Ospina um, made a couple of good saves in, in the second half. There was one in particular where he came out uh, to smother at the feet of the uh, the attacker who'd gone clean through and broken the offside. So there's a, you know, is is this defensive openness... Um, a payoff for the attacking football that we're playing at the moment? Or is it possible to be that expansive and that fluid as an attacking force, yet be more tight and more secure at the back? Because when you're, when you're facing a bunch of games against uh, you know, Tottenham, uh, Manchester United, PSG, that if you present them with those chances, more often than not, they're going to take them. Yeah, sure. I, th- I think we could stand to be a little bit tighter. I do think that... Um Largely, it's a consequence of the way we're playing. And, and at the moment, we're scoring plenty of goals. Um, I, I agree with you that we probably haven't been pu- punished to the full extent that we could have been in recent weeks. But um, I think, you know, actually, we're, we're playing quite similarly to, to Liverpool um, at the moment. They've got that very fluid front three where nobody's really the striker or the winger. They, they all interchange quite freely mm. and they play this fairly high pressing style. And they, they've got similar issues, really, in that. Their defence, you know, I, I think we've got more quality, individual quality, certainly in our defence than they have. But um, they're having this payoff. But I, I always think, I think if you're scoring lots of goals, um, you know, I, that's the right way round to have the problem, if that makes sense. I, yeah. I think if you're scoring plenty of goals, you always, always give yourself a chance. And I think, you know, we've played... Chelsea at home this season and, and actually we did look defensively very tight and I, I would like to think that when we play teams like Tottenham and Man United we are capable um, of being a little bit more circumspect as we were against Chelsea and we limited them really to not not terribly many chances um, so I, I think it's a little bit of a concern and it needs a little bit of work but honestly I, I think that's something we're probably going to have to quote unquote put up with mm. but I do think that people are generally more forgiving um, about kind of little flaws in the team if not just if it's effective but if they're enjoying what they're watching sure. Arsenal are far far more enjoyable to watch this season and I think supporters you know supporters get flack for being quite unreasonable people but I think they're quite reasonable in that regard that look if you serve up something entertaining will forgive the odd counter-attack goal or the odd poorly defended set piece. Mm. And that's not just about scoring lots of goals. That's about playing, you know, an exciting brand of football, which has probably been missing for the last couple of years. So, yes, I think we could stand to tighten up a little bit. I don't think it's an enormous problem at the moment, but it's probably probably our most pressing concern, yeah. Mm. I suppose naturally when you are facing... uh a so-called smaller team or a team that you're expected to beat, you're maybe not quite as focused on what you need to do defensively. Like you say, against mm. Chelsea, you know, all that focus was there coupled with fantastic uh, attacking as well. So hopefully that's what we see uh, on Sunday in the Derby. We'll touch on that that, that game in a minute, but just uh, let's talk Aaron Ramsey just for a minute. Um, mm. He was played on the right 
Um, and, I, you know, I think most people would agree that's not his best position. I don't think it necessarily suits him, even though he's been effective there. I don't think it really suits the team. It particularly doesn't suit the team when you've got to fill in right back there, um, you know, who's uh, who's not going to be as dynamic going forward as, as Hector Bellerin, for example. Um, mm. But to my mind, I thought, you know, being picked there against uh, Ludogorets was, was a fitness exercise as, as much as anything yeah. else. I don't really see him, uh, bar terrible loss of form or injuries, he's not going to usurp Theo Walcott and maybe even Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain on that right-hand side. But he is a guy that Arsene Wenger seems to want in his team when he's, when he's mm. fully fit. Um, it's going to take a bit for him to get into that team, though, isn't it? Because uh, yeah. the midfield has been performing well. There are lots of options, lots of combinations. Maybe he hasn't found the optimum one just yet, and Ramsey could well be could well be a part of that. Um, but he, you know, he is a guy. I think that that's got a, a bit to prove. Yeah, definitely. He's he's going to have to work his way in, and and at the moment, I I agree with you. I don't see him on the right. I think it may be his most immediate route into the team might even be the left um you know to to play that kind of connecting role that Iwobi plays not quite in the same way but I think in terms of the balance of the team that might work because there was a time when where Ramsey on the right I think about this time last year really did work because of the combination of players we had I agree I don't, I don't think it's quite the same now um but I think that realistically might be his most immediate uh, route back into the team but mm. a lot will depend on this on uh, Santi Cazorla's fitness as well because at the moment I think you're right they understandably because there's a, a lot of kind of new players there um, you know Cazorla and Coquelin is still to my mind our best functioning central midfield I, I'm not convinced that will be the case come April May but at the moment it is but if Cazorla's not available and really there's no other partnership that really really that is established and works yet and and you're right Ramsey could very well work his way into that equation and you know not many people would have backed Cazorla and Coquelin as a, as a pairing that would work um so you know any any number of crazy combinations could come off it could end up being like Ramsey and Elneny for example mm. um because we've not really seen it together but he, he is going to have to work um, to get back into the team. Um, at the moment, I think uh, he, along with Olivier Giroud, is probably best off as an impact sub for the moment. Um, I'm not sure that will persist. I'm not. I have some concerns over Granite Jacker um, defensively um, in that he cannot defend in any <laughs> way, shape or form by the looks of it. Um, despite what he does on the ball is brilliant, but what he does off it, Less so. Yeah. Um, so I don't think he's really staked his claim yet. Elneny is a player who I think in the last couple of games has just really started to show some quite interesting form. So there are kind of, there are routes back in, but he's definitely going to have to bide his time. Mm. I think something that might be quite good for us is I don't see him starting on Sunday. I see him kind of playing the last 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, no matter what the situation is in the game, he will come on. I think, but then, you know, if he goes away with Wales and plays a couple of games with Wales, that might be good for Arsenal to kind of, for him to work out some of that rust sure. um, that he will inevitably have with them and then, you know, come back to Arsenal perhaps a, a little sharper. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I don't think he's ready for a North London derby. Um, you know, j- just on basic fitness terms and sharpness terms. You know, he, he he's played, you know, 15 minutes at the end of Sunderland, 10 minutes or whatever it was, and he got 75 minutes against Ludogorets. And, you know, I think to be fair, when you talk about him and Giroud being impact, impact subs, um, you know, two assists for Ramsey, even if one of them was, you know, accidental, uh, three goals for Giroud. So, you know, having those kind of players on the bench, uh, if and when you need them, is, is really, really important. Um, and I think it's interesting as well to, to, to not know quite what our midfield is going to be. Uh, I, think, I think what we might do is we might get a, an indication about what Arsene Wenger thinks, obviously with the team that he picks uh, against Tottenham, um, you know, going into a big game, if we don't have Cazorla, what is the solution? So uh, I'm mm. interested to see what he does there. On this game, very quickly, is it a good time to be playing them? I'm always wary when you're facing a team yeah. that that has gone through a bad run of form. So I'm looking at this Tottenham game going, well, they haven't won in six games. And then you look at Manchester United and the, the terrible form that they're in. And at, at the time of speaking, I think they're losing 2-0 to Fenerbahce, which is hilarious. But there's also that moment where you go, at, at some point, they just, you know, they have to turn it around. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we'll, we'll focus on, on Sunday, obviously. Uh, it is a game where the old cliche applies of form kind of goes out the window. Yeah, absolutely. I think if Pochettino could choose one game to have right now, it would probably be Arsenal at home rather than Arsenal away. But I think a big part of him would choose the North London derby because they can go in um, as underdogs. Um, and often, I think, and it's it's certainly an anxiety I have about Old Trafford in a couple of weeks, um, often being a clear underdog or being out of form gives you a bit more license to play a certain way. Um, and I think Tottenham will be very aggressive, which which I think they always are, but I think they might be especially aggressive. They're particularly um, they aggressive, have, this, this, this iteration of them, aren't they? And, and I know if, yeah. the, if things aren't going very well, they tend to be a bit more, but um, yeah, they're, they're very, uh, they like to leave the foot in. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I expect quite a bit of that. Um, I'd like to see us fight fire with fire, really, and especially in the first 20 minutes. They've they've got some injuries and they've looked a bit jaded recently. And I'd like to see us start much in the manner that we have, you know, against the likes of Manchester United and Chelsea recently mm. at home, where the first 20 minutes we get in their faces, because I I don't think they like that, um, you know, that kind of the their style being the mirror being kind of reflected back on them, as it were. I, I don't think they cope quite as well with being pressed and hounded themselves so I'd like to I'd like to see us do that um but but I think you're right in that you know on paper yes it's it is a good time to play them they've got some injuries they're short on confidence but you know Pochettino would probably prefer this to something like Sunderland at home where the pressure would really be on and you think think, oh god they're gonna play like I mean in fairness they would murder Sunderland even the form they're in, they'd absolutely annihilate Sunderland. And they, and they probably would, yeah. But at the same time, you know, when you're low on confidence and you play a team that's got 10 behind the ball and the pressure's on you and the, mm. the expectation of the home fans and they'll probably, they'd probably turn very quickly, you know, something like this. You know, he, he doesn't really have to worry about any of that. He doesn't sure. really have to focus on anything other than his own players and his own preparation, which 
which might might end up playing into their hands. But listen, if you want to you want to play a game like this, and you had the choice between playing a Tottenham who were in, in amazing form or in poor form, you'd probably choose poor form. Yeah. Um, on balance, but that that still doesn't that still doesn't guarantee you anything at all. No, I'm not going to ask you for anything as uh, silly as a prediction or anything like that, but just to <laughs> just to say that I hope, uh, having watched them against Bayer Leverkusen the other night, I hope they play just like that because uh, I, yeah. think, uh, I think our guys would lap it up. Look, we better leave it there, Tim. Thanks a million as always. Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed to Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. That's at Stilberto. And of course, you can read his column every Thursday on arsblog.com. This week's one about Mesut Ozil is very, very well worth your time indeed so check it out arsblog.com you'll see it there on the home page it's called i just don't think you'll understand right you like money because you can buy things with it like food and drink and panini football stickers so how about winning some by using fan jewel which is one day fantasy football no season-long commitments none of that having to beat deadlines to pick your team you just pick a team for the week in question you enter and you can win this week we're in the five thousand pound fan favorite which has a first prize of 750 pounds and there are hundreds of cash prizes in this game all you've got to do is go to fanjewel.co.uk sign up and use the promo code arsblog if you don't win on your first game then fanjewel will refund you up to 10 pounds so this five thousand pound fan favorite it costs five pounds to enter I've put a team together to try and win some money Um, well I'm not going to take the money if I win anything on this which I won't because I'm just so terrible at fantasy football but if I do uh, I'll give it to uh, a charity I don't know maybe the Willow Foundation something like that that's close to Arsenal well the team I picked is uh, Heaton in goal Smith, Kolarov and Michael Keane at the back Uh, midfield Mesut Ozil Jack Wilshire, Raheem Sterling and Gundogan Gundogan how do you say it? Whatever. Uh, and uh, front three of Sturridge, Sanchez, and Ian Acho. So if that team wins me some money, uh, I'll donate it to charity. If you win money, you can keep it all for yourself. The way to do it is go to fanjewel.co.uk. Sign up. Use the promo code arsblog. And uh, if you don't win, Fanjewel will refund you up to £10. You can also get their mobile apps. All the details uh, for iOS and for Android are on the homepage. Fanjewel.co.uk. Do it. Try and win some money. And if you do win some money, please let me know. Send me a tweet or a message or leave a comment. Uh, just, just tell me. Uh, just let me know that you've won some money and i'll let you know how badly i lose because <sighs> i always lose but that's just me and me losing makes it more likely that someone else will win so there you go right uh, before we head on with the rest of the show and i give you the winner of the david squires competition last week we did an extract from a brand new football autobiography it was by uh, alex Kleb. it's called side to side my life in football and he was looking at his first day at arsenal this extract this particular extract is one in which he talks about his best friends at the club and which player he really didn't get on with. At Arsenal, my best friends were Sask Fabregas, Thomas Rosicki and Matthew Flamini. They called us the Four Amigos, which means golf friends in Spanish. But we never played golf and I can't speak Spanish. We did, however, enjoy many table tennis contests after Flamini had a table installed in his basement. It was an odd place, part sophisticated lounge with flat-screen TVs and neon lights, part dungeon. There was a door there that was always locked. 
I asked him one day, what's in there? What have you got in there? Don't worry about it, he laughed slightly suspiciously. I didn't worry. I was just curious, though. I asked Sesk, have you ever seen that door open? No, he replied, but I bet he's got something cool in there. One evening, we were playing table tennis, and Matthew had gone to the door to get the pizzas from the delivery man. We discovered the door was unlocked. Thomas, Sask, and I poked our heads around. It was like something out of Pulp Fiction. There was a person in a leather suit with a ball gag tied to the wall. Melt me, they said. Melt me. But my English was so bad, I didn't understand what the word melp might mean. With the benefit of hindsight... I now get what they were saying. My only hope is that it was Robin Van Percy. Van Percy. I can't even say that name without wanting to spit on the ground. How I hated him. He fancied himself as the best table tennis player and was always trying to invite himself around to our evenings. Are you guys playing table tennis today? He'd ask. And Flamini would say, No, we're going bowling down near Finsbury Park, hoping it'd just go away. But more often than not, he'd just say, Great, and we'd have to go bowling with him. He was so competitive all the time, but there was just something off about him. I could never warm to him. I think it might have been the fact that he was just a massive prick, always playing pranks on people. One time he cut up Vito Manone's shoes and it ended badly. If there's one thing I've learned in my football career, it's never mess with an Italian's shoes. Manone shouted, Who did this? Who did it? There was silence. Nobody wanted to break the dressing room omerta by telling tales. Well, nobody except me. Van Percy did it, I said, and before I'd even finished, Manone was giving him the worst wedgie I've ever seen anyone get. Whatever about the screaming, when there's blood, you know it's bad. After that, Van Persie had it in for me, but I got the last laugh by moving to Barcelona, where he couldn't get me. Not long afterwards, Fabregas rang me and said, You were spot on about that guy. Aaron Ramsey just smashed him in the face after a game. It was glorious. I wish I could have seen that. Isn't that some interesting stuff? Side to Side, My Life in Football by Alex Kleb. Only published in Belarus at the moment, but I'm sure it'll be hitting the shops in other languages, in English, um, soon. Yeah, no no question. I'm pretty sure that's uh, that's going to happen. So, last week I gave you a chance to win one of two copies of David Squire's book, The Illustrated History of Football. I asked you a question, in what year did Arsenal first win the league title? And the answer was 1930-31. And the two winners are Marcus Ackerman and uh, Hussein Ali. So Marcus Ackerman and Hussein Ali, well done to you. I'll be in touch and we'll get the book sent out to you. It wasn't out last week. It is now and it's well worth your uh, your hard-earned money. I have to say it's a very, very funny book and if you're looking for something for the football fan in your life for Christmas, this, uh, this would be the perfect gift. You don't have to lower yourself to buy some merchandise or book about some team that we wouldn't like. This is uh, broad and all-encompassing and all football fans will like it. So, uh, so do check it out. Right. Looking ahead then to Sunday, and it is a North London derby. It feels like a very big one for both Arsenal and for Tottenham. They come into the game on the back of bad run of form, I guess you would say. We're going into it on a good run of form with the momentum that we wanted um, coming into this game. As November kicks in and the, the, uh, the games get a bit more challenging, I think it was really important to come through 
the relatively kind run of fixtures that we had with some momentum behind us. And, you know, we're, we've, uh, I think, 12 wins from the last 14 games. And uh, I, d- I don't know that you can ask for really much more than that, apart from, well, 14 wins from 14 games. But let's be realistic, you can't win them all. We're going into this game, though, three points ahead of Tottenham. They're on uh, 20 points. We're on 23 points. It is one of those games where they say that form goes out the window, and that is very true. That is true. We've talked about this on this podcast before, where much inferior Tottenham teams and far superior Arsenal teams have, um, what have they done? I mean, they've had some very, very very close, very tight game simply because of the nature of the game that this is. But if we can continue the way we've been playing, when we've been playing at our best this season, you have to fancy our chances of of getting a decent result. It'll be interesting to see what kind of team he picks. My suspicion is that he will go back to the kind of formation with Alexis up front that has served us well for most of the season. So Theo Walcott, fitness permitting, will come back in on the right-hand side. He's obviously been in excellent form and uh, he does have a decent record against Tottenham, so hopefully he can uh, he can do something against them again. Uh, Hector Bellerin should be back at right-back, which gives us a, an extra dimension in attack and in defence. I think Nacho Monreal should be back at, at left-back. Um, Alex Awobi on the left Probably, but he might be tempted to do something a little bit different. Uh, I think Iwobi is he's done well, but he looks like maybe he's just hit a bit of a plateau, but I have a feeling he'll he'll go with Iwobi. Where we're not quite sure what he's gonna do is is midfield and the midfield partnership that he chooses. Is it gonna be Coca? I think Coquelin is pretty much a shoe-in, but it's who partners Coquelin. Will it be Mohamed El Nenny? Is that too cautious and too safe at home? Will it be Aaron Ramsey? Probably a bit too soon for Ramsey to start a game like this. And Coquelin and Ramsey hasn't always been the most convincing of duos. So then you have uh, Coquelin and Granite Xhaka, which has worked pretty well a couple of times this season. The manager was asked about Xhaka's disciplinary record, and he said, yes, he can be a bit, what did he say, impulsive. I mean, he did back him to control those impulses, but it is one of those things where uh, you're playing against a team in a white-hot atmosphere, and Tottenham, as we know, uh, if you've watched them, they're a bit bastardly, they're a bit niggly, and, and they like a foul, and they get away with a lot. And the worse the game goes for them, the more they stick their foot in or leave their foot in. Uh, so hopefully, I uh, hope we drive them mental and they go fouling around the place. But So, yeah, we'll just have to see what he does in midfield. Xhaka and Coquelin, Coquelin and Ramsey, Coquelin, I don't know. And that's the thing. It doesn't look as if Santi Cazorla is going to be fit. So that's uh, those are his options. So we'll have to wait and see what he does. Um, but a chance for us to put a bit of distance between us and Tottenham. Six points if we beat them. And then, of course, we've got an international break, so you're looking to carry that bit of momentum into the interlull. So it's a big, big game. Big game. And it is hard to say exactly which way it's going to go. Obviously, there's there's only one way we hope it will go, but it's just it's just one of those games that you just you just can't really call with any certainty or authority. Um, I think it's about time we did them. I know we beat them in the Capital One Cup last year with two goals from Matthew Flamini, but the season before that, there was a draw and a defeat at White Hart Lane. Um, so 2013-14, I mean, we did the double over them, two one-nils. Uh, 1-0 at, at our place and a 1-0 at their place. I'll take something similar, but, uh, you know, give me a 5, a 6-0, you know. no. Okay, I'm being greedy. I'll take a 1-0. I'll take a win any way you want to give it to me. 
Uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't care how we do it once we do it. And uh, I think a lot is going to revolve around Mesut Ozil and, uh, and what he can do. But he looks like a guy who's in the mood. So fingers crossed he can produce a bit of magic or he can drive this team uh, to the result that we all want uh, against them on Sunday. Because let's face it, they are awful, insufferable, terrible cunts. And uh, I don't think we should lose sight of that. Whatever our difference is at the moment, uh, what's going on around the world, I think we should all just remember that we can unite in the common knowledge and belief that Tottenham are cunts. So, on that note, I'm going to leave you. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arscast Extra looking back at what happened in that derby. And we'll have full details of the live Arscast Extra, which is taking place on Thursday, 24th of November. So put a date in your diary. That's Thursday, the 24th of November, the day after the PSG game. It'll be happening in the garage in Islington. We'll get you ticket details and how to get them and where they are and what's happening. We'll uh, we'll give you all of that on Monday's Arscast Extra. But do put the date in your diary. It'll be great to see you over there. So let's keep fingers crossed. Have a great weekend. And uh, hopefully we're all smiling come next week. Until then, have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye. And as we look around here in the Sistine Chapel, we cannot be anything other than awestruck at the work of Michelangelo. Years of back-breaking labor, the intricacy of his work, so ornate, and yet it connects with us on a very spiritual level. One cannot help but think of one's own mortality. We think of him painting this ceiling Art that has endured through the ages. And my favorite part, if you look there in the top corner, a poem that has gone unnoticed by many. I'd like to read it for you now. In Michelangelo's script, he has written, The wanky Tottenham Hotspur went to Rome to see the Pope. The wanky Tottenham Hotspur went to Rome to see the Pope. The wanky Tottenham Hotspur went to Rome to see the Pope. And this is what he said. Fuck off.